Hello and welcome to episode 12, the final in this run of John Richardson and the Future Noughts. I am John Richardson and joined by the Future Noughts, Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Edgar Lesby. Hello. And this week, uh, as it's our final show, we will be looking forward and talking about how we think about the future broadly and how we uh, maintain a drive to act positively and enable change. We will also, of course, uh, as is the want of humankind, look backwards and uh, celebrate our achievements and discuss some of the things we might have done differently, as we will uh, find out from an email coming in shortly. And I must say, we, we read all the emails, and the, the personal nature is one of the things that touches me most, that uh, Jez was working in the police, retired, went into teaching, had a sort of crisis of confidence, was about to leave teaching, was sat in the woods listening to last week's episode on nature, and there and then decided that he couldn't leave teaching and he had to spend his remaining working years trying to inspire the youth. So well done, the two of you. You've added a voice for good to the roster of teachers in this country. The way the email is worded and the reason I don't read it in full is Jez sort of says, thanks through gritted teeth for making <laughs> me go back to a job that I thought I'd had absolutely enough of. He's not happy with the pair of you. Um, but he, he had literally applied for another job uh, and he says, um, now he's going back into teaching. So he says, if come November or so, I'm stamping down the corridor because the fucking kids have wound me up again. I'm going to be emailing again to blame you. Okay. And the bottle of Cape Verde tangerine liqueur my daughter and her mum brought me back from a holiday is going to get finally drunk. Uh, but keep it up. Can we have an episode on family and relationships? So he's also anticipating some sort of marital breakdown as well by the sound of it. <laughs> we had a lovely... Uh, tweet review this week which i think you found ed from a lovely lady called Anne, who describes the podcast uh she says bit sweary brim full of terribly systematic problems but strangely uplifting that's about right isn't it we say <laughs> fuck we discuss how awful things are and yet somehow people like it that's what people are <laughs> sort of saying you see it time and time again you know your podcast makes me simultaneously incredibly angry and and full of despair but also <laughs> like I might be able to do something about it and slightly hopeful, which is not bad, really. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I always go back to Edward Abbey, the kind of American environmentalist who said, uh, better a cruel truth than a comfortable delusion. Uh, and then you can make a cruel truth more palatable by bringing some humour in around it. Yes. Well, it's never enjoyable to talk about, uh, for me, the things you do well. But we do get a lot of tweets uh, broadly saying thank you, which is lovely, and we read all of them. We get a lot of tweets that I do like, about actual change that uh, this podcast has instigated in people's lives. Jules uh, got in touch this week to say, so far, because of your podcast, I've changed energy provider, adjusted my garden, uh, planned a holiday locally, reduced my meat consumption, considered eating crickets, contemplated my work, politics and health, and now I'm going to have to spend more than two quid on a shirt. So that's pretty good, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. That's amazing. He's done the whole suite. Yeah. He's actually gone through every episode and done every recommendation. I'm impressed. We had a lot of feedback from last week's podcast. And I'll admit, over the series, I think fashion is the one that um, I have spoken to people about the most. We've had a lot of people shocked uh, by some of the facts in there, a lot of people asking further questions. We've had uh, questions about whether secondhand clothing is a, a mitigating way of buying more clothes. If we buy secondhand clothing, are we still contributing to that idea that you need to change your clothes a lot? Or is that a sort of guilt-free way of continuing to buy clothes? 
Well, and I th- yeah, and I think that's the sort of paradoxical philosophical knot that I think everyone wrangles with because clearly secondhand clothes are better. I mean, as you say, the, the most sustainable outfit you've got is the one that's already in your wardrobe or already in someone else's wardrobe. So exchanging those and swapping those or, or buying them secondhand in a store or online is fine. Um, but I do think on the flip side of that, it is still a, a weakness in the fact that if it still fuels that acquisitiveness, that restlessness, the fact that you're never going to be happy unless you can lay your hands on the new outfit, I don't think that's healthy. We, you know, I think a lot of this is about being grateful and thankful for for what we have and not feeling that sort of constant state of unrest and unsatisfaction. I would very much agree. On, on a more specific question, John Maxwell has emailed in. Uh, I enjoyed the show, especially the laughing at John's cardigans. I feel you missed commenting on Inditex Zara, a 26 billion euro business that claims it's working in a different way from traditional fashion. It would be good to hear from Ed and Mark. Are they leading the way or is this just greenwashing and paying PR pundits to swell the story? I mean, I think we did touch on it briefly in the fashion episode. We didn't go into much detail in it, but Obviously, there is a lot of pressure on the fast fashion industry to find closed loop circular economy type fibers. Now, whether that's recycled polyester or or other man-made fibers that can have that kind of circularity, there's clearly some benefit in that. But that goes back then to our philosophical question is like, does it make us happier and content to still be on that endless hedonic treadmill of aspiration and desire that can never be met? Mm. I mean, Zara have been getting their house in order. They're not fully there and they've got a long way to go. Um, They've been criticised in particular for how they pay people and the transparency of their supply chain. But, you know, they seem to be going in the right direction, but it it requires all of us to keep an eye on them. Now, uh, another email we had uh, on the same show was from a lady called Ruth. Now, uh, you've read Ruth's email. I think we've we've all read it, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah, I've read it a couple of times. Yeah. It's only fair to uh, acknowledge all the emails we get and not just the nice ones. Ruth, it has to be said, is in a very specific position. She has a farm and we've discussed farming on previous episodes and her daughter has just graduated as a fashion designer and is in a difficult situation as regards COVID-19, had a job, has lost it. Um, So it's obviously, I, I think what's happened, I think Ruth is a good parent and she has in some time working on the farm or some downtime, she's Googled podcasts about fashion and she's thought, I'm going to try and help my daughter by getting some information. She stumbled across our podcast. She's not been put <laughs> off by the early signs. She's stuck with uh, the podcast. Suffice to say, we haven't quite scratched the itch she was looking for in terms of help. Her broad point is that we as middle-class gentlemen seem to suggest that the solution is always to pay more. She is angry at the vegan movement uh, because of the amount of deforestation that is happening to grow soy. Uh, she says, I would never tell people to buy British. How can I when I drive a foreign tractor, a foreign pickup, and all my feed and fertilizer come from Europe because they are better value for money? To tell people to buy British would make me a complete hypocrite. And we are all hypocrites. Cotton production was fine in the beginning. And then greed set in. The leather industry is the same. Hemp, pineapple, and banana will all go the same way. It's not the product, it's the way it's used. Vegans think they're saving the world. It's nonsense. Um, 
She goes on to say, this has been written straight after listening with no edits and not hearing any other podcasts. So it may be ignorant. I apologize if it is. I just wanted to give you a view of the average person who's worked hard all their life, encourage the next generation to do the same, which is proving difficult because of how they've been brought up. Perhaps you should do a podcast about you guys, your wages and where they actually come from. That would be good and gain you a lot more respect. She believes that uh, you guys are paid by big companies to do corporate work and all my money comes from the sort of murky world of TV advertising. Um, does she have a point? Yeah, I have some empathy with where Ruth is coming from. Oh, but also I think there's a real kind of question here around the difference between guilt and shame. You know, I think the kind of the the flipping of the question back onto us and where our salaries come from is an interesting one because yes we do do some consultancy work uh but i would argue that you know i was told by one of my mentors many moons ago uh that you sometimes have to take money off the assholes uh, and then spend it wisely um and jonathan porritt who led forum future where i did my first sort of work in sustainability in the late 90s always used to say we all sup with the devil but some of us just use a really long spoon and i think yeah to a certain extent we're all slightly hypocritical because we're all part of these systems um but what mark and i try and do is is obviously try and infiltrate uh inveigle our way in and try and change and bend and inspire others to help change those systems in in any way shape or form that we can and what i think ruth is is doing here is feeling perhaps a slight sense of shame about some of the defensiveness she has about her own farm and what we should be doing is trying to encourage her to be looking at the more positive options, which aren't always just about paying more. You know, uh, I think the difference, if we're talking about fashion, the difference between a £2 t-shirt and a £4 t-shirt is enormous. Um, And that is still within the realms of most people's affordability. I get this, you know, and um, you see it a lot. And sometimes I think it's frustration. Ed and I spend our lives, I think, I mean, it, it all comes down to that serenity prayer, which is God grant me the you know serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to choose the difference. And, and what we're trying to do is change the things we can or get ourselves into a position where we, we can change the things that we currently can't. And that means you have to talk to everybody. As um, I think you quoted John Muir from Sierra Club last episode, he said, when you try to pick out anything mm. by itself, we find it's hits to everything else in the universe. So you can't have purity. You can't be completely pure because then you'll never do anything. So changing the future is not is a contact sport. And that means it's always going to be a compromise. And that's one of the things that we have to talk to people about, about you cannot get it all right. You'll never get it all right, but you better be bending yourself in the right direction because, you know, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of history bends towards justice. But, you know, what I find is a lot of people, they kind of go, well, I'm not going to do anything because I can't do it perfectly which means they just end up propagating the existing system. And then they become cynical about it and saying, well, nothing will ever change. So why? Well, you know, why not? Because you, you've, you've never wanted to change anything because you can't, can't get there. And it's very easy to get trapped in that circle of it's all too big, it's all too difficult and whatever. And, and it actually comes back to the whole essence of the podcast, which is everything is connected to everything else. If I take a consultancy job from an organization that that's, you know, hasn't had a good past, am I taking bad money or am I being hired as Ed and I are to help them change? And, you know, we are known for not taking any prisoners. We don't go, nobody, nobody's under any illusions about whether we're going to be nicer or not. I mean, as Ed calls it insultancy, not consultancy, which is very, very rude to our clients. So, you know, I, I think those criticisms are, are valid. Every criticism is valid. It's just how do you deal with it? And the, fu- the future is a contact sport. And we try our best to do the best. And, you know, if we get it wrong, we are very happy to be held to account and challenged mm. because if we weren't being held to account, we'd never get any better. So, uh, so Ruth, I would like you to come out for a drink with us. 
Yeah, it's about not taking it personally, I think. I mean, I think the the angle on that is not letting perfect be the enemy of good. I mean, a lot of this stuff instantly gets, as we know, especially so much in the sort of modern era, it instantly reverts back to sort of polarized binaries. It's like, you know, well, I think this, so therefore you think that. And so there's never anywhere where the twain shall meet. And actually, most of the grist is in that center ground. And that's where, you know, you have to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty because that's where the real change happens. And if we all just sit in our trenches with no man's land unoccupied between us, then, you know, you don't get any change or transformation whatsoever. And I believe you had a just a quick point. I, I, I'm sort of, uh, I'm too biased on this topic to have an opinion, but the, uh, as regards vegans being responsible for the trees that are being felled for soya production. Yeah, not getting nitpicky on this, but 80% of Amazonian soy, which is responsible for the deforestation in the Amazon um, in Brazil and other Latin American states, is actually going for animal feed. You know, it's, uh, it's, a t- it's a tiny percentage of it that actually goes into veganism. And an even smaller percentage that's in my freezer. But that freezer that was paid for by, you know, the fact that you're essentially evil, John. That's true. Yes, that was probably paid for, that freezer, by a show I did on Channel 4. And in the middle of that, there was probably uh, an advert for uh, bazookas. (laughs) I, again, I'll hold my hands up and uh, take my blame. Now, the reason I read that email, and broadly, I wouldn't usually do that kind of thing because I think everyone deals with negativity in their life, but it sort of is exactly what we want to talk about this week, which is that This is the most engaged I have been directly this podcast in putting out something that is purely about, um, it's not driven by profit, it's it's driven by nothing other than to say this is a positive force in the world. And when those emails come in, I take them more personally than I do emails I get saying I'm not funny. I don't mind being told I'm not funny because I don't think I'm funny either. But enough people do that I'm able to make a living from comedy. So it's a fairly simple mathematical equation for me that I say, well, I agree with you. Let's go for a pint and talk about how shit I am. But broadly, you have to agree I am funny because I'm a comedian and that's down to other people. But the the fact of trying to do something good means I do take that criticism more to heart because what it does for me is make me think, oh, what is the fucking point if you're trying to have a reasoned debate? And that's down to me not listening to the good ones as much as I listen to the bad ones. But I think the, the thing I'm fascinated by the two of you is if this podcast series has proved anything, it's that you have such a wealth of knowledge on such a range of topics that itself is is a burden on you. I think the knowledge you have... I would find difficult. You know, I've found times this week when some of the facts from the fashion podcast have come back to me when I'm just doing the washing up and I've heaved a huge sigh into the bubbles. Um, And then you deal with people like that. So to try and keep to the broad framework that we have, we'd usually say, uh, how fucked are we? And I'll just put that question to the two of you. How fucked are you? Um, (laughs) emotionally at the moment how do you find doing what you do week in week out and dealing with not just the weight of the knowledge but also the difficulty that you have engaging certain people oh god now do you really want to pull up that thread um yeah for a bit because we can always edit it out if you start crying and i feel bad (laughs) for those uh for those listeners we did have uh, a podcast a few weeks ago where at the beginning i asked exactly this question and we didn't keep it in because the podcast itself had so much content in it but i had found the news particularly difficult that week and it wasn't even something that we had it didn't relate to one of the themes it was just a, a grueling news week and i couldn't work out how how you two found the strength to g yourselves up and i'm sometimes guilty of you know if we have an interview i'll say well i'm the pessimist one and they're the optimists but it's not that simple is it you are not 
just optimists. You don't believe in the world. That's a fight that you go through. You force yourselves to keep moving forward, even though sometimes you aren't optimistic. And I want to know about that process, if I could, because I think I will need those tips. And I think people who have engaged and listened to this podcast will, in coming weeks, you know, face some of those challenges themselves and, and want to know how you cope with it. I mean, it's a long-term thing. When you know, when you ask that direct question, you know, how fucked are you? It's it's tough. You know, as I say, I became very aware and very engaged with climate change and a lot of the big environmental challenges we face in the mid-90s. And it's since then it's been like a gathering storm, you know, where you're stood on you stood on an exposed hilltop, you know, your hair is standing on end, the air is literally crackling with electricity, the lightning is starting to flash, you know, and you've been shouting to everyone who goes, I think we should get off the top of the hill now. I guess in the past, I felt like the boy who was crying wolf, because you sometimes have your own self-doubt, particularly when the kind of the very visceral battle around climate denial was going on probably 10, 15 years ago. And you question yourself and your own commitments. Um, and I think we're sort of vindicated on that now. I mean, I probably had my first burnout in the mid-noughties, uh, which is when I went and took a year out and did my flight-free trip around the world. But I mean, the last couple of years, I think, has been particularly tough. And we've touched on this in a couple of the podcasts. But, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report in 2018 really did knock me sideways. And I think the Arctic temperatures we're experiencing right now, Mark and I have had conversations about this recently, because, you know, when Siberia is hitting 38 degrees, that really does take you to a, a, a quite a dark place mm. of gloomy contemplation. It's like, I've spent most of my adult life you know, fighting this fight or trying to create this kind of transformation. And it does feel like a sense of resignation. And that, but that's not about despair. You know, that's about having to sort of embrace the uncertainty of the loss of control. And I think it is very easy for people to slip from denial into despair. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we do the podcast. It's like, don't let that happen. Sit with the uncomfortable truth, the cruel truth, as Edward Abbey put it, and get beyond that comfortable delusion and look at the world with open eyes. And I think, you know, for me, the way I've been galvanized through it, and it's partly through becoming a father myself, and we all, we're all fathers, uh, we're all parents on this podcast, that makes it more personal. But to be honest, I was already all in before that. Um, you know, I didn't suddenly go, oh, well, now I've had a daughter, I'm even more committed mm. um, to try to change the world. So I was like, I'd spent 20 years doing it before that happened. But uh, the, the thing that gets me out of bed is is still that idea that there is a transcendence, that the inevitability of loss does not make you know what we're trying to do through our work any less important. We don't love things any less because we might lose them. And we, you know, we're probably going to end up losing most of the people we love in our lives. Um, and many of them will go before us. But that doesn't mean we don't value them. And it doesn't mean we don't love them any less. And I think I have that same sense for the world we're living in, and particularly the people and the wider family of life that we share it with. Uh, and so it's an incredibly inspiring thing and not from an ego or arrogance perspective, but just to get up and participate and to do something worthwhile. Yeah, you know, it was my birthday yesterday and I was having this conversation uh, with a friend and saying, you know, there's almost three phases in life. The first phase of your life is you as victim. The second phase of your life is you taking control of something. And the third phase of your life is being in service to something more powerful and bigger than yourself. And I felt like I kind of rushed through the first two phases and probably got stuck into the third phase, perhaps a little earlier than than some people. Uh, but that's what keeps me going. And that's what keeps me galvanized and motivated. 
I think it's really important right now that we quote some prog rock lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. How long will this take? <laughs> this won't take very long, actually. So that, so uh, every week I have a little Zoom drink with um, some senior prog rockers and some senior people from the space industry, because that's how I roll. <laughs> and in that group is a man called John Mitchell. And John Mitchell is an incredibly talented guitarist and producer and songwriter in the prog world. And he's got his band called Lonely Robot, which is fantastic. And this, their new album isn't out yet, but it's coming out shortly. And he sent me a copy. And uh, one of the very early lyrics in it is, Grief is the price of love. And I think, you know, every time I feel grief, like I did for my friend Tony, who we talked about in the nature episode, you realize that the reason you're feeling that grief is because you love it so much. And that actually take, that takes you back up again to go and fight for it more. So every time you feel the grief, you realize that that's like a secondary thing for the love and therefore the love must be stronger. I mean, and the other thing that I think that keeps me going and it doesn't, and I have to say, you know, it's not every day. I mean, some days it's just brutal and you, you don't want to get up and you have very dark moments and that's where you know having friends like ed comes in really handy but um as a mantra i live by which is um, fear is hard but regret is a fucker mm. so you can be scared about what's going to happen and you can think you're going to fail but you've got to have a go because regret is lying on your deathbed wishing you tried harder and been somebody different and that's i think that's brutal that would be more brutal than the fear you fear at the moment so so, uh, yeah, this is a cheery podcast, isn't it? I'm liking this one. It's full, of, <laughs> full of jokes. It's very positive, though. I know it's, it's it's coming from a conversation about difficulty, but it is the answers are positive, and they are, you know, they're certainly what I need to hear at times. Um, we had a, a further question from a listener about, uh, it, was, it was in specific reference to, to COVID-19 and the situation we're in now, and the discussion about how the death toll needed to reach a certain point for our population to feel that it was worthwhile acting and the sort of relationship we have between needing to see something horrific before we act on it, even though the warning signs were already there, certainly in this country from other countries and how we address that globally. Why you think it is that people need the disaster to have sort of started to happen before they do something about it? Well, the simple answer to that is just a thing called salience, which is, you know, how can people creatively imagine something happening to them or in their own sort of sphere of concern and influence? And salience is, is time and space related. So it needs to be happening near you uh, physically and needs to be happening soon or imminently. And so I think there's, you know, there's a really valid point in the fact that, yes, it has to ramp up. It has to get serious before people take it credibly. I mean, but my pushback on that was going, yes, that's if you're a really cynical government who is unwilling to make bold and brave, courageous decisions uh, and make a case for them, because clearly other governments around the world have acted much sooner and much more decisively and avoided, in many ways, the largely catastrophic loss of life that we've managed to create through our late lockdown and now you know, the worries around uh, a second wave as our response and our exit from lockdown is led by politics and not by science. And so I do, but the, the other thing to add to that is that we also have a, a disproportionate response to sudden and tragic loss of life like this. And, you know, you could also argue that when we have big disasters, I mean, I remember working years ago uh, when I was a marine biologist on some of the implications of the Piper Alpha disaster around oil rig safety you know when that rig exploded in the north sea and caught fire the big thing there i mean there was a tragedy you know 
dozens of people were killed. It was a bit like um, Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, a big environmental disaster as well. But, you know, the billions that were then spent on oil rig safety were probably completely disproportionate. You know, how much are we prepared to spend and sacrifice to save one life? And that is always a very, very live philosophical debate in any field of endeavor. And when you start to look at things like the lockdown, when we looked at the air clearing with the loss of traffic and the, and the decline of economic activity, yes, there's a huge impact of that. But then we might have been saving literally thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives globally uh, for people not dying of respiratory diseases. So it's very hard to sometimes see the wood for the trees in the complexity of these systemic shifts. I think there's a simpler answer. (laughs) (laughs) I think the simple answer is that human beings are emotional creatures. And until you feel it, you won't act. And so when somebody dies or there's a crisis happening right now, you feel it. And your emotions drive everything. You know, I, I like to say that the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided. And it's very hard to feel something that isn't happening to you. So how do you feel a future climate change catastrophe? How do you feel a future financial catastrophe? How do you feel something that hasn't happened to you? It's very, very hard, especially if something that is making you emotional is happening to you right now. And so we react to our emotions, not our intellect. And that's one of the reasons that people in your profession, John, you know, and in the arts more generally can be so very important because it's getting people to feel stuff and talk to the heart that is at the core of a lot of what the work ed and i do is that how do you make climate change emotional for people how do you make fashion emotional for people and sometimes you use humor and sometimes you use you know a great prog rock a lyric and chorus uh, you know or whatever it is but it's about making people feel it and complex systemic issues are hard for people to feel and i think that's what ed and i have dedicated our life to is getting people with that ceos or you know people in their school days to really feel it because when they feel it then they'll act Well, I have as a result, a direct result of this podcast, camped out in my garden, which I wouldn't have done in the last 12 weeks. I know it's a minor thing, but it helped me greatly at the time. It made me feel a lot better and it did wonders for me. I was a much better person, probably for between six to eight hours the next day. Um, I think if I were to do it more often, I could work on being a better husband and father, maybe even two days a week. I don't know, Um, but I intend to camp out more. I wouldn't eat a spicy Mexican meal before going into a tent. But I have, you know, I've, I've felt greatly the, the benefits of doing this podcast from, from both of you. And I remember at the start, we talked about, and we talked about lockdown there, lockdown and the changing situation we're in as an opportunity to move forward with the right things and leave behind some of the wrong things. We are by definition, 12 shows, three months. We're now three months further down the line. I wanted to ask how you both feel that has played out before your eyes. Do you feel we are continuing to capitalize on that opportunity? Or I remember asking at the time, are we in danger of the Spanish flu leading to the sort of roaring 20s? Fuck it, it's been a hard time. Let's go out and party. How do you feel about that? Well, who knows? All I do know is that the people I've been working with in these three months have already committed to some pretty serious and far-reaching changes and some of the conversations we're having about what's possible would have been impossible before the lockdown and before the crisis. And that's woken people up and they're feeling the possibility of something different. I think there is this easy way to go like, oh, the world will never change. There's never a gap. There's never time. There's never a, there's never an opportunity to, to change the things we want. And actually, in some ways, we have been given one. Now, not everything's going to go back. 
but enough things have opened up that certainly we can do a course correction. The, the question for me is, you know, how big is that course correction? Is it, you know, one degree or is it 50 degrees or is it 100 degrees? All I know is I've just put my shoulder to it as much as I can. I'm going to push as hard as possible. But certainly, you know, like large clients of ours coming out of this crisis, committing to being regenerative businesses, interesting conversations with, you know, military forces about cooperating on climate change. These are things that would have been quite hard to get through in a three-month project previously. And now we we find there is that opportunity there. And what I've, I mean, what I've been saying to a lot of my clients is there's never going to be a time in history, like in your life, like this again, where the whole sentiment of the world has changed or shifted or is up for grabs. So if you're not going to be bold now, then when? When mm. are you ever going to be bold? If you don't go for the exciting thing now, and you may fail, you may fail, but if you don't go for it now, you will always look back on that opportunity and kind of go, oh my God, there was a moment there I could have tried something brave and interesting and different, and I didn't bother. That argument has been working really well, I think, for a lot of the people I work with. And it just comes back to the same point we always make. You know, we're not here to try and predict the future or, you know, we're here to stretch the imagination of the possible. You know, it's not about extrapolation of trends. It is about the opportunity. And uh, a lot of the discussions we were also having are around, you know, is this a pause or a reset? Is this just a kind of temporary aberration before we lurch back towards business as usual? And clearly the momentum behind build back better or a green recovery um, is still potentially there. You know, we haven't lost that opportunity yet. And I was really struck actually by a poll that was on YouGov this morning. Uh, where they're saying only 6% uh, of the UK public want to return to the economy we had before, with 31% wanting to see big changes. Now, that 31% is about the same as the percentage of voters in the electorate who actually voted for this landslide majority government. So when that government talks about the people's choice, then, well, the people's choice is just saying they want to see big changes. And actually, another 30% wanted to see moderate. So you've got 60% of the electorates turning around and saying, we want to see big or moderate changes off the back of this. And that is it is this opportunity for environmental justice, for social justice, for economic justice, uh, and addressing so many things. Because if you start to get bogged down in the shape of the recovery, you know, is it U-shaped, V-shaped, or L-shaped, you, then you're instantly back into the mundanity of, of managing our response. Whereas the, the opportunity for shakeup is so enormous, when we talk about Greece having their financial crisis, you know, a few years ago and nearly getting bumped out of the EU, they lost 10% of the value of their GDP. Now, the UK is already at 20% loss. That might be a shorter timescale, 20% loss. But, you know, the, the potential effects are still devastating. And I suspect there's a lot of sleeping impacts which are going to come out as furloughing starts to end and actually redundancies start to kick in. Because clearly, you know, we've had a big sticking plaster over the top of a lot of this. And so now, as Mark said, is the time for a bit of radicalism because the lure of the familiarity and uncertainty is a totally, totally false flag. So on the economy then, um hi guys any any clue of where this email's coming from all is, right is it new zealand new zealand no. <laughs> is it, is it, is it, i'm gonna say it's some it's antipodean isn't it i'd like to start with john delivering this email somerset somerset, somerset. not bad I'd like to start with John delivering this email in an impeccable Bristol accent, as per my home residence. <laughs> All right, my babber. Did you steal his pants? <laughs> I may well have done. I may well be wearing your pants. Do it. Um, I went to tweet a picture of the uh, ill-gotten pants, and if anyone had referenced it in any of the feedback, I would have done. But um, nobody asked, so nobody gets to see my pants. 
but you will get to hear my testicles. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, so Stuart says, I've listened to all of your podcasts today. I've read Mark's encouraging second book. Yay! And I always draw the same conclusion. Capitalism is unable to secure a long-term future for civilization. The inherent philosophy of free markets and the laissez-faire systems has proven to be incapable of making decisions for a better society. Or am I just looking on the negative? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how entangled everything in previous issues is that has been discussed. It gives me great relief that there are great minds out there thinking about the future beyond tomorrow. All the best, Stu. Well, thanks for that. Absolutely Oscar-winning accent. <laughs> do you know? Do you know what's worse? Is that was so bad, and I lived in Bristol for six years. <laughs> so, I think the problem with the word capitalism is it means a particular way of doing things, and it's supposed to be a way of assigning capital, basically. But the thing is, it doesn't assign it very well, as we've seen, and we've said this time and time again on this podcast. The markets and free market capitalism, in particular, does not play fair because it does not cost in what we call the externalities of the way it behaves. So if you had to pay for the climate change, the slavery, uh, the inequality and all that kind of stuff, then everything would be a lot more expensive. So capital sort of goes around. It's a bit like, you know, like a fast fashion thing. Around, Look at me, aren't I beautiful? But actually underneath it all, it's actually quite ugly. And we've all grown up in this system where we're all told it has to be this, it has to be this, it has to be this. Now, again, it's not that markets are bad. It's not that profit-making is bad. It's not that entrepreneurship is bad, but it should be on an honest playing field. Um, I think I've quoted this before, Philip K. Dick's brilliant quote, reality is that which when you stop believing in it, it doesn't go away. And the markets and free market capitalism doesn't deal with reality. And we're seeing that in, even at the moment, right? So if you look at the, where the economy is, it's devastating. And yet the markets are betting and, and rising ridiculously. So it, it proves that there's this massive disconnect in the financial system between reality and the way the financial system works. And so there could be a version of capitalism, you know, in its broad definition that would work perfectly if it priced things properly, but it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't do that is because that would stop some people being very, very wealthy. And it also means that we, you know, we are already... You know, especially in countries like the UK, collectively rich beyond our wildest dreams. But the distribution of that wealth is completely skewed and has been concentrating. You know, we essentially have trickle up, not trickle down economics. So, again, I think we touched on this in an earlier podcast, but, you know, the share of reward is absolutely punitive. And Jacinda Ardern, you know, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, said the other week that economic growth accompanied by worsening social outcomes is not success. You know, it's failure. It's actually failure. And so if if we are talking about a recovery, then that recovery has got to build back better for everyone. You know, it can't just be about at the minute we've, you know, the, the organization that's probably done best out of the whole COVID crisis is Amazon, mm. you know, and Amazon, the Amazonization of our economy. And we, we're in this sort of paradox you know, some aspects, there's been the sort of radical relocalization of some food networks and some of the other good things, again, that we've touched on. But yeah, where Amazon is the single biggest beneficiary of the crisis, and we have to look at ourselves and going, is that the type of recovery we want to see more of? Or do we want to have interventions, as Mark was saying, you know, that redress pricing that include externalities and actually redistribute so everyone gets a kind of more even crack at things? Because that goes back to what Ruth was saying, you know, essentially alluding to privilege. 
and privilege is an enormously important topic that we're all discussing right now as well. You know, and I fully acknowledge that I started life, you know, a few rungs up the ladder. Um, but hopefully I've tried to use that advantage in a positive and constructive way. But, you know, I'm fully aware of the fact that I didn't start on the bottom rung. Yeah, I remember I got interviewed um, recently and uh, somebody said, what was your big break? And I said, well, I was born white male out of poverty in a country with a stable government, not at wartime. Well, you know, I, I won the bloody lottery. What what more do you want? And they were slightly taken aback. They thought I was going to say my first excellent book. But uh, no, I didn't hear that. Uh, you know, but I would have got to write that book if I hadn't been born where I was, you know. And I, mm-hmm. it is, I think it is beholden anybody with any level of privilege to try and help those below them. You know, and I meet people who do that at every level of society. So you meet people with very little that are still trying to help people who are less well off than them. And I've met billionaires who are trying to do the same. So it's not always about how much money you've got. It's about the attitude you've got and, and the moral and ethical direction that you've chosen to live your life by. We will come on to uh, we are all similar in that in that regard. I would say that we all we, none of us have started on the bottom rung. Uh, we will discuss our plans for series two of this podcast and, and how things might change. But to blow a bit of smoke up your ass, we've referenced Ruth a few times now, and I feel she got in with quite a negative email and uh, has had some decent airtime. So here comes... Here comes this voice. Um, an email. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> an email comes in from Alice from uh, still partially locked down Scotland. Uh, think more at Miss Jean Brodie and less Rabsy Nesbit. Uh-huh. So she's got in straight on me there because I would have gone full on Rabsy Nesbit. She's from Fife. Oh, you're picking up the specifics of it. Excellent. Oh, I've spent, spent a lot of time in Scotland. I've got Scottish roots. Fife, what you're waiting for, if you want to three, two, one, let's do it. That's uh, for a reference to... What the fuck to... are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck that? Slam dunk the funk. Get on up if you got that feeling. Five, what you're waiting for, if you want a three, three, two, two, one, let's do it. Can't believe they let you become a father. <laughs> <laughs> Irresponsible. Oh. Can we get back to the lady from Scotland? Um, <laughs> so she says and the topic of her email here is actually you've changed my life yeah she says hello i've listened to all your podcasts at least twice now that makes me sound a bit keen but you've been accompanying me while i've been building a reclaimed patio during the lockdown my question is this how do i in everyday life persuade those around me to change their ways um so to sort of boil down her email, she's a big fan of the podcast. She likes the facts. It's difficult sometimes to, certainly with those close to you and those you care about, put some of those facts across in a way that doesn't seem aggressive or um, like you're trying to force them to make changes. She says in her line of work, she's a, a, a maternity nurse, so she tends to work around people who can afford a maternity nurse, and that means a certain class of clientele, she says, who aren't by means of their wealth and comfort, they're not necessarily driven to want the world to change. And we've discussed that a lot. Those in power have no interest in the change. But she says it's small things like they'll load the dishwasher five times a day and put it on rather than wait and fill it up. They don't recycle. Oh, they don't reuse God, John, things. For you, you must have felt a deep pain when that one came in. Didn't that, didn't that go to the very heart of you? The fact that somebody's stacking a dishwasher badly multiple times a day. Well, I have asked for names and addresses from Alice. Um, with the podcast finishing, I'm sort of free now uh, on a Friday morning. So, uh, you know, once lockdown lifts and I can stay overnight, I will. So it's sort of like um, Super Nanny. 
I'll go to these families and uh, I'll just film them loading the dishwasher and then make them sit on the stairs in tears while I do it properly. <laughs> um, but how do you find, obviously, the, the consultancy work where you're being paid by a company, you can probably afford to uh, be a little stricter. There's an emotional connection sometimes to the people we love and the people we know who we might want to drive towards certain change. Do you find that... Uh, it's affected relationships you've had, some of the things you know, or do you find that you perhaps don't get invited to dinner parties as much because you upset the people next to you? I don't know. I think there's lots of ways of framing these things. I remember going, I was at some event once and then we were sitting down to dinner and everyone was sort of grabbing chairs at the tables and I had to sit next to David Davies, former conservative leadership candidate. Uh, mm. You know, it was one of those moments I went, oh God. I'm going to sit next to David Davies. What am I going to say to him? And it was an exercise in like going, okay, right. How can I convince him that the stuff I work on is important? And so I, I think a lot of it is about framing and finding the ways and the, the ways to connect into people of wildly different political persuasions. And I think there is usually a way. Um, I remember having a conversation with a friend in America about where she was saying she was working in um, in Florida and working in a very rich Republican area where people had more money. You know, they weren't interested in climate change. They weren't interested in saving energy or saving money. And she said, oh, I've got some funding to try and promote renewable energy. How am I going to do it? We said, well, don't talk about the obvious things. Don't talk about climate change and saving money uh, and all that kind of stuff. Talk about it as, you know, American independence and your goddamn right to American sunshine. And that's the way you should be framing it because that's the stuff mm. they care about. Now, the, the end result, the outcome is the same. And Mark always talks about this, you know, people sort of agreeing over projects where they disagree over politics because that, that's a lot of our work is going in with people who we don't align with politically. We don't align with ideologically. And that includes some friends and family as well. Uh, and trying to find ways of being empathetic to their particular position so not creating the the false binaries and the polarizations. And, and again, like I was saying before, opening up the fertile middle ground where you can hopefully inspire them to come towards your uh, trench and then shoot them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think Ed is more explicitly politically aligned than I am. I try to avoid all political alignments because, as, as I say, I prefer to think like an engineer rather than a politician. And, and there's a number of things, I think. I think the first thing is love. You just have to start from a position of love. You have to understand that person is where they are. Uh, and for them, where they are is perfectly reasonable, perfectly acceptable, and perfectly fine because that's who they are. And the thing is, you're not going to change them overnight. So I think people go and say, I'm going to argue my case is going to be so brilliant that they're going to change. They're going to see it my way. Uh, my good friend, David Price, who, um, who's worked brilliant in education, remembers he was told by a mentor, he said, you know, when he was trying to change some people's views on something, his mentor said to them, he said, David, they've spent all their lives getting to this particular point of view you're not going to change that in an afternoon and then i think you know what you've also got to do is is if you love somebody you say okay i'm prepared to love you and, and put aside our differences then you've got to give them a way out because if people have got entrenched into a position that's potentially harmful for the planet telling them they're awful people isn't going to encourage them to move in your direction so you have to find out, okay well what is the way out for them where they don't have to feel shame and guilt and can actually go on a bit of a hero's journey and these are all the very practical things about systems change and negotiations and whatever that you that you have to do you know got you've got to see it from their point of view and and the problem i think with so much of our politics and our press is we're actively encouraged not to see it from somebody else's point of view but to actively vilify them for having that point of view and it's one of the reasons i say i, I try to avoid all political affiliations because you know i know awful uh, labor party supporters and awful tory supporters and i know really brilliant and thoughtful tories and and thoughtful labor supporters so it's about 
loving people for who they are and where they've got to and then helping them go somewhere positive which they can enjoy doing oh someone hates their fucking lib dems <laughs> but there's a really important point here there's a real difference between shame and guilt you know so shame is always always about the self uh, and what tends to happen as mark was saying through this media fueled antagonism is we're always shaming each other you know we want to publicly humiliate we want to kind of take people down a peg or two uh, and then what happens when people are shamed is you know they either withdraw into themselves they try uh, and avoid the shame with alcohol or drugs or whatever. They attack themselves, but most likely, and actually the default option is to attack back. You know, it just drives the antagonism. Now, actually, some of the deft stuff you could do with a bit of humor and what we, I think, do on this podcast is when we talk about, you know, how fucked we are and why we're fucked, some of that makes us feel guilty. But the thing is, guilt is not about the self. Guilt is about the behaviors we undertake, and they're changeable. And they're the things that we can actually make active conscious choices about all the time. So it, it's a subtle distinction, but you know, it's not about shame and it's not about attacking the self. It's about trying to point out the ridiculousness or perhaps the slight selfishness of the, of the behavior because that can induce guilt and then that can be changed. But this is where humor is so powerful Yeah, because yeah. as you will know, John, people laugh at the truth and a lot of punchlines we're actually about things we feel guilty about or foolish about or whatever, or we think, oh, God, I do that. You know, and the fact that the comedian is standing up there and saying it, it's the, re you know, in psychology, they call it the relief theory of comedy. And that ability to kind of look at the ridiculousness of how we're behaving can be done in humor far better than if you go up to someone, if you went up to someone and said, God, you're bloody, you're being ridiculous thinking like that about your relationship, they'd likely punch you in the face and rightly mm -hmm. so. But if, if the stand-up st stands up and, and, and does a joke about how he is failing horribly in his marriage to, you know, do the right thing, then you as an audience member can kind of go, oh, yeah, I do that. And suddenly you've got to the same point, but without feeling shamed. You've, you've had a realisation. I, th I think that this is what's so powerful about comedy and one of the reasons that, you know, we have you on the podcast, essentially, John, you know, to, to help <laughs> us with that. Um, speaking of comedy, uh, a tweet from Johnny on an environmental matter. I feel like I mentioned this because it's not often a question comes in that I feel I can help with uh, as much as you. Johnny says, my wife will not allow me to turn our shed into a pub. My belief is that this will avoid <laughs> unnecessary travel in the car to a real pub. Should I leave her for a more environmentally friendly partner? Who will have the kids? She's ruining the planet, but I will be in the shed. What to do going forward? John? Well, I, I'm going to learn from what you've just told me, and I think you need to come from a place of love and understand that your wife is um, where she is. Let me see if I was listening. She's where she is because of a set of beliefs that she believes to be right, um, and you have to meet her in the middle, talk about the love you have for her, and how even a short trip to a pub, perhaps half a mile away, you feel too far from her and too far from the kids. And what you want is a situation where you don't have to leave the environment of your own house to enjoy a drink. Um, and if you try some bullshit like that, she might come round. <laughs> is that it? I fear, I fear that this question is really a proxy for another question, which is, I want a pub in my back garden. Does that make me sad? I think that's what <laughs> yeah. he's really asking. I see. I've been inspired by you, John. So I've got my office in the back garden, which I have built. It was an old artist studio that I've turned into a bit of an office. That's where I'm sat right now, in fact. But on Friday nights, it becomes the Venus de Milo's arms. And do you know what's great about this pub? The landlord will always do a lock-in. Yes. The music is always to my taste. And uh, it's, really, it's really, really close to home. Very close to home indeed. 
Yeah, but when you said the thing about the music being to your taste, it did make me think that there's a very fine line between a lock-in and a hostage situation in a pub. <laughs> so you do have to ask the people if they want to be locked in before you put the album on. That, I would say, is key. Um, well, I'm delighted. I, you know, you, you two have inspired me to change to a renewable energy supplier, to be more at one with nature, to look into electric boilers, to reconsider the the merits of the skulls that I'm looking at for my daughter. And if anything, I'm pleased to have been able to encourage you two to get more shit-faced in your house. Um, <laughs> actually, there's a serious point there about mental health, actually, which is people are saying earlier, you know, you know, how do you deal with it? And I do find that I've got this constant babble in the back of my head about all the stuff that's going on, you know, the climate change, the retreat of democracy, problems with the media, all that stuff. But one of the, thing, one of the ways you, you deal with all this stuff is you have to be kind to yourself. And yet sometimes, and I think it's honest, you know, people often say to me, you know, how do you manage to do it? You're so blah, you're so, just so up, you're so, you know, personal, whatever. But we have our dark moments and we have our challenges and we have our, uh, you know, little rituals that maybe aren't so good for us, like having one beer too many or, you know, getting into a dark place or not being particularly great with our partners or whatever, whatever it is. I mean, I'm, I don't want to talk for Ed. You know, Ed's perfect, of course. But, you know, we do we do struggle and it's and that's okay as well. I think it's okay to go, yes, this is the day I'm finding it really hard. And actually that's one of the things a podcast has done for me actually is make it a lot easier to bear that because I feel, I, you know, I had one friend in Ed that I could always talk to and now I feel I've got another one in you, John. Well, cheers to that. I haven't mentioned what I'm drinking this week, but I'm just having a beer this week because it's our final one. And I thought what I wanted to do was have a beer with some friends. So I'm just having a beer. Uh, when are they coming? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I hope these podcasts have been, uh, they've certainly been informative. I hope they've been inspiring. I hope they've helped people. If they haven't, when I said, what question do you want to ask Mark and Ed? A couple of people fired straight back with, where should I move to? Um, Finland. <laughs> um, okay, that's the end of that one. Um, have you ever had that 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 moment of? I mean, Lucy has uh, five or six times to me uh, during lockdown said, "Where are we going to go? I can't bear it here anymore." I think she meant like all of us as a family, rather than. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had that? Do you know what people aren't worth it? I'm just going to go and buy a little farm in country X and see out my years. I just don't think, I just don't think that works. Everyone does that, but that's the sort of survivalist fantasy in some ways. I mean, we've talked about this, I think in the sense that, you know, whether it's climate, whether it's COVID, whether it's, you know, economic and social instability, I mean, none of us are safe until all of us are safe. There is always that ideal where you go, oh, well, I'm going to go and find myself in New Zealand or in Scotland or in a nice Welsh Valley or in the West Island, you know, and I'll be growing my own veg and have a solar panel and I'll be energy independent and food self-sufficient. Um, but if everything else goes tits up, you know, you're not going to be safe there because everyone else is going to become going, hang on, he, he's got electricity and he's got food. So, uh, you know, whilst I entertain those idle fantasies of the good life you know the real work has to happen back in the system i think and that makes it yeah. it makes it tough yeah but we still definitely i mean i think everybody has those fantasies about all sorts of things don't they and yeah. and I, I tell you when i have them is when i get tired yeah when i get tired of fighting <laughs> you know because you do sometimes come in some days and just go god that was tough trying to work with those people to try and get them to see the big picture and sometimes you think oh fuck it yeah i'm just going to move to the west coast of scotland you know, and take a crate of Rioja 
and I'll be done. Um, but then you just go, well, you know, actually the real fight is, is back in the system and, and that's what you've got to change. You know, the, the concept of burnout is so sort of prevalent in our world as well, and particularly in environmental and social justice campaigners, full stop. Um, and there's a great quote from Edward Abbey, who was this sort of fairly radical campaigner. He just said, don't burn yourselves out. Be a reluctant enthusiast, a part-time crusader, and a half-hearted fanatic, because you've got to save the other half of yourselves and your lives for pleasure and adventure. It's not enough just to fight for the land. It's even more important to enjoy it while you can, while it's still here. And I think that's the thing. You've got to, you've got to be able to live and not be consumed by the fight the whole time. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Ed says, and Ed is much better at this than me, he says, if you want to subvert the status quo, you've got to have more fun than they are and let them know you're having more fun while you're doing it. And Ed, I think, is particularly good at finding the joy in stuff that I would find uh, more overwhelming. But I think there's a more general point about being kind to yourself. You cannot be kind to the world unless you're kind to yourself. And I think that's a thing that lots of us struggle with is how to look after yourself, your own mental health, your own well-being. Because unless you've got that sorted, it's very hard to look after anything else with any kind of energy in the tank. And that's one of the things I've discovered is it's just exercise. Yeah, Mark does exercise. I do fancy dress. <laughs> Bring those worlds together. I'll see you at the next London Marathon. <laughs> the John Richardson and the Future Noughts man on stilts, however tall we have to be, the three of us, we'll take it in turns to go on the bottom. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't read any more into that than then was suggested. Um, we move on to the final feature of this week's podcast, which is Pointless Futures. Oh, God. I collected it at seven o'clock this morning. It's in the room with me now. No. It's the testicuzzi. When it arrived, I suddenly, I felt so selfish. I suddenly thought, why didn't I order three? And we could have done this together. Jesus. I feel bad. So here's the deal. I'll send it to you when I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a lovely looking thing. You're going to hear live the first attempt. It comes with a little card, actually, that tells you how to use it. It says, uh, decide on the water temperature. I've just gone for room, which I think is fine. Uh, pour the water into the testacuzzi and turn it on. For an enhanced experience, try adding other products. Um, so I've lobbed a few M&Ms in there. Um, <laughs> place the testacuzzi wherever you desire. I've gone for the desk, actually, and I, oh. I realize, actually, I should celebrate this point because it won't be long before it's on the fucking floor. Um, given the rate of dissension in the testicle area. So I'm going to enjoy the fact that it's the desk now. Uh, Step four, get naked. Uh, Step five, free your man bits. Um, Sort of unnecessary. I think you've sort of addressed that in step four, getting naked. But who am I to criticize the guys that made the testicuzzi? And step six, Ed, is dunk your junk. Um, And the, the entire tagline for this is experience hap penis. Um, may cause fits of unexpected pleasure prolonged use may lead to addiction side effects include happiness euphoria ecstasy bliss pleasant aromas from your genitals and getting more humbles Um, (laughs) so anyway lucy is uh mystified i had to pay customs on it i didn't realize (laughs) so my postman went to deliver it last week but just put a card through saying that there was a customs payment which uh worked out at just over nine pounds per testy 
which um, <laughs> is, you know, not an inconsiderable investment on top of the purchase price. So I had to go at seven o'clock this morning to, to get it due to restricted opening hours. I was just praying he wasn't going to ask what was inside because you can't answer that question, can you? It's a little bath for my bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Is it is it at this point that we talk about how we're going to diversify the podcast away from three white middle-aged men uh, in series two? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Because um, one thing that has become obvious is that we are all of a type. And I think this is really a celebration of that. I think this is, it's it's the next step in our friendship. And it's the final step in this as a podcast featuring uh, three white men. So the next series we will we will return, I think, in, in some way to some of the topics that we've already discussed and, and we have a list of every topic that has been sent in. We've kept all those, so thank you for all of them. Uh, housing's come up a lot, uh, religion and climate crisis. Mark, I think you've got a full list somewhere. Oh, you? yeah. Race, gender, population, urbanisation, antibiotics, 3D printing, trade unions, activism, water, family relationships, mental health, sports, the arts, leisure time, air pollution, ageing, economics and capitalism, religion, war, space travel, human computer interfaces, housing, Christmas and the gift economy, illegal drugs, and the world of comedy. Hell of a list. Um, so we will pick, I think, more topics. Uh, and next series will feature a, a guest uh, and an interview as part of each topic. We will be back, for those of you who have asked specifically, we'll be back on the 2nd of October. So we'll have a short break for the summer. Obviously, if the world gets sorted out in that time, we, we won't be back. Otherwise, I think we can put it in on a fairly heavy pencil. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention, John, is actually I did, I did actually Google the symbolism of washing your balls, knowing that you were going to be, uh, you know, deploying the testicuzzi tonight. <laughs> uh, uh, an Urban Dictionary tells me to wash someone's balls is to excessively compliment someone. So I could just say it's been the pinnacle of my life to work with you, Mark, <laughs> uh, on the on this podcast. Um, I'll turn it on so you can hear the noise, and you can tell me whether this is going to be a problem or not, and I'll put it somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a deliberate sound effect. Is that how it actually? Is that it? That's it, right up against the mic. There. <laughs> I'll describe it. It's like a. It's like sitting. Uh, reverse on a toilet seat um so there's a sort of white porcelain chamber with two little sort of egg-sized divots in the bottom each of those divots has a little hole uh which the air comes up so i guess i'll do it then shall i oh if, if you have to poached plums oh this feels very graphic actually Getting, uh, <laughs> i feel like i'm exposing myself to you but you can't see me can you <laughs> no, thank god this is audio thank god i mean there's, there's some advantages to being at opposite ends of the country there you go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> it's not nearly good enough to justify the indignity of mounting a table in your garage. <laughs> oh, um, it's my first time using the testicuzzi. My tip for anyone on their first time would be warm is the temperature to go for <laughs> room temperature is actually basically cold where your where your testicles are concerned um i'm now feeling just deep deep shame and i've just got wet balls so i can't put my pants back on <laughs> so i didn't think to bring a towel um so this this first run of podcast ends with me there's been a little spill, so there's a little bit of sort of bollocky water on the table. 
and I've got my pants around my ankles. Um, <laughs> you're sort of Pontius Pilate. You're Pontius Pilate. Instead of hand washing your responsibility for the future, you've bull washed your responsibility for the future. <laughs> this is sort of fiddling oh. while, literally fiddling while Rome burns. You know, this, 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 podcast, this podcast has just jumped the shark. I fiddled while the world burned. At least it sort of endorsed the feature because if that had been genuinely transformative, then we would have had to sort of get rid of pointless futures because actually we'd have had to admit that some of them have merit. Do you think though, but do you think in a quiet moment you'll try it again on a warmer setting? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, just to get my money's worth out of it, I'm going to use it every day for the next year. I'll put some, maybe some oils in there. Can you imagine wandering into the dog and bus going, oh, what's that smell? Oh, it's cedarwood bollock juice <laughs> i think what you've done here john is you've actually helped me and ed we were talking about this you know how do we deal with tough times and keep positive from mm. this moment on no matter how hard it gets you know fighting the good fight about climate change or social justice or whatever i can say no matter how hard it gets it's never going to be as bad as listening to john wash his testicles <laughs> live <laughs> um thank you all i can't thank you enough it's been uh, a pleasure it's genuinely helped me through lockdown i look forward to doing these again hopefully face to face hopefully in more uh salubrious and social environs but uh, more than anything i look forward to, to talking again have a wonderful couple of months i say off you will be working tirelessly to make the world a better place to everyone who's listened to everyone who's emailed and tweeted uh, we will of course be monitoring the email so if you're listening latterly do do get in touch we will uh, still enjoy hearing from you and we will be back on october the 2nd take care of yourselves take care of each other take care of this goddamn planet bye